1: Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. It's time now for Armchair Politics. Join host Tom Sumner for this weekly reality check on current events in local, state, and national politics and the real issues that really matter. You, too, can be part of Armchair Politics.
0: Find us on Facebook we let the dogs off their leash. Stay tuned, cause it's on now.
4: Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to this week's edition of Armchair Politics, our weekly roundtable on the Tom Sumner program featuring our roundtable regulars. Joining me for today's edition of Armchair Politics, our panel of political pundits includes on the left, Flint's premier political pundit, Paul Rosicki. Paul, good morning. Welcome.
5: Good morning. Good to be here.
4: And on the right, longtime Genesee County Republican, Henry Hatter. Henry, good morning. Welcome to you as well. Good morning, Tom. And I was going to say, for his uh, inaugural appearance on Armchair Politics, uh, last but not least joining us, um, but I'd have that a little bit wrong, because he was uh, on the show once back before the pandemic. I think he was introduced to me and us uh, by um, former Flint Mayor Dane Walling. He's... uh, uh, from he works in the um, uh, Michigan uh, House of Representatives Communication Office. He joins us by phone. Jasper Martis is his name. He goes by Jazz. And uh, Jazz, welcome to you as well. Great to have you back, even though it's been quite a while.
2: It, it's been a while, but it only feels like a minute. Thankful to be here and looking forward to the conversation.
4: Well, I don't know if Jazz remembers this, but certainly our roundtable regulars will. We start the show with uh, some quotes, the first one being the finish the quote, where I ask you how would you finish this quote, and it goes like this. Life's most persistent and urgent question is what?
5: Hmm. Is what did we miss? I was going to say, what's next?
4: (laughs) (laughs) I like that one. No, the original quote goes like this. uh, Life's most persistent and urgent question is, what are you doing for others? Oh. You know know who said
5: that? No, I don't.
4: Well, we're going to recognize his birthday next Monday. It was Dr. Martin Luther King. Oh, Martin Luther King.
5: Oh, okay. Okay,
4: yes. Good quote. Now, here's a quote. Here's a quote that got my attention this week, and I don't know if you'll if you'll recognize the quote or uh, know who said it, but it goes like this: "Our great nation now teeters on the brink of a widening abyss."
0: I hmm. just read that someplace. Uh, was that Biden? The Biden's abyss, best? I recall. <laughs> <coughs> I. No,
4: that was uh, former what, president. Uh, Former okay. President Jimmy Carter writing <coughs> a New York Times op-ed published on the eve of the anniversary of the January 6th insurrection.
5: Oh, uh-huh. he, he
4: charged that without immediate action, we are at genuine risk of civil conflict and losing our precious democracy. Is the U.S. on the brink of collapse and or civil war? Can I just
0: emphasize uh, that? Well, you know, if we look at all of our internal problems where we have all of these conflicts between black and whites and rich and poor and and, uh, strong and weak and so on and so forth, while the Russians, the Chinese, and the Koreans are looking at this to exploit us, to drive a wedge further and further apart, and that is very, very real. Yeah, I mean, I think there are some concerns. Although
5: I, I, on the on the somewhat farther side, I would say we've been here before. We had great divisions during the Vietnam War, obviously the Civil War, and even during the Great Depression, there were similar kind of divisions. So we've we've faced these things before. But as I say, there are some things happening there that are obviously very concerning, um, and. Uh, I'm worried, but at least I got a streak of optimism that I think this this too shall pass.
2: Yeah, I agree with Paul and Henry. Do I think that we're on the brink of uh, civil war? No. However, we are in a in a very difficult time. I think uh, one of the things that you can look to uh, of what is what is causing this is. Um, A lack of faith in institutions whether it's our government institutions our media institutions our financial institutions Um, in 1964 over 78 percent of Americans had a positive view of the government and and that that wasn't partisan it was do you believe that the government's doing good and and nearly four out of five people said yes in 1964 you look at that polling in 2019 it's something around 17 percent where people just Do not have any faith in their governing systems. And that's what opens the door for demagogues to come in. That's what comes in. uh, That's what opens the door for people to come in and start eroding our democracy. So I think um, we're at a dangerous moment, as President Carter pointed out. But what we ultimately need to do is revitalize the faith that we have in our government and our media and in each other. I take Uh, back everything I said.
0: I take back everything I said and I'm gonna heel to Martin. What do you say? that's
5: a very good point. And he's right, those those numbers of of trust in the government have been declining ever since the mid nineteen sixties. And it's you know a combination of Vietnam, Watergate, other scandals and as I say, I, I think to some degree I think Thomas talked about this, the whole rise of what he calls rant media has kind of fed some of that too in recent recent decades
4: no I, I targeted radio in particular
5: <laughs> oh yeah I know I mean, radio the, yeah the radio
0: well you know there's another issue that's going on it's that the family in America is breaking up and uh, you know the dominant forces in the country cannot survive without the spouses and without the kids And this is really ugly. It's ugly for people who look at the people who are dominant in this country and uh, wonder how they're going to hold together without having uh, an organized family uh, about which we are well familiar as we move ahead. Well, let's, let's,
4: let's move on. There was another uh, quote that caught my attention this week, and I don't know why, because it's, 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 it's a quote, and Paul will recognize it as soon as I, I say it, that um, we hear far too often. Um, and the quote goes like this, This is the right time to turn the page and spend more time with my family. My my
0: husband, daughter, son, and granddaughter, and put them first. Uh, that was a woman. I remember that quote so well. I think, uh, but I don't. Know what, I can't remember whether she was a state official or a national official. But I think it's national. And, and, and maybe you'd be, the governor of Utah. Or something like no, nope.
4: But you would be right. It's somebody from the national. Uh, Right uh, from the seat of power in Washington, um, and and Paul knows how much I love it when politicians that are leaving a position <laughs> say it's to spend yeah. more time with their family. Um, I, I I can't help it. I just roll my eyes all the time. But that, <laughs> right. that, that came from U.S. Representative Brenda Lawrence, Democrat from Southfield, oh, who yeah. announced Tuesday yeah. night she will not be running for re-election this year to Congress, meaning Michigan will lose its only current black member of Congress. Mm. Redistricting was not a factor in my decision, she said. While it would have been a challenging race, I'm confident I would have been re-elected. Um- Anybody that was want to any no, no, That
0: was uh, that was Brenda <laughs> no, Lawrence. Yeah, Brenda Lawrence. But uh, other comments oh, that Tlaib Yeah, the was, way the well.
4: the lines are being drawn, it's going to yes. be a pretty competitive race. Right. Which which is one of the reasons why, when you see an answer like "I'm I'm leaving to spend more time with my family," it makes me want to ask, what do you think her real reasons are
5: for retirement? <laughs> you know, I parents? I often wonder whether. When somebody takes a new job, you know, they become Secretary of Defense or whatever, they say, boy, I'm really glad to have it. I can spend less time with my family now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that'd go over well, I think. Right, right. Um, but Brenda Lawrence had served uh, two terms, uh, three terms, right?
4: I, yeah, I think that's right. I don't have it in my notes, Henry, but uh, but I think you're right. I think she was, she did serve three or four terms. But she's decided not to uh not to run again. Now one thing I do want to um get in a little bit. I think we've got I think we've got time to get this in. If I don't waste too much time getting to it. Um I, I did want to talk about Tony uh Paladino. Oh yeah. Uh, just just briefly he passed away uh this week and uh the official story is uh, of from COVID. Um, some are speculating because of his uh, Flint political activism that it it's possible that it was uh, from uh, something to do with lead in the water and and an, oh. ac- and an accumulated health effect. But he he, w- he was very young, actually.
5: Yeah, uh, he was, and I I mean I know whenever he. Showed up to protest and so forth. He did mention that he had some health issues because of the lead issues, and I I don't know any more than that beyond that, but. Uh, yeah, it was a, it's a it's a law. He was he's quite a character.
4: Well, I'm going to squeeze this in. It's about 3 minutes long. It's from when he was on the show when he ran during the uh recall election against Karen Weaver. Here's just a little bit. One
6: of the uh, Missionary Baptist 6 <laughs> who has uh, thrown his hat into the ring to run for mayor in the uh, recall election against Flint mayor karen weaver tony paladino joins me now in the studio tony welcome to the show and thanks for being here thank you tom i appreciate it i I tried to get you on the show once before and uh you 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 stood me up of course i (laughs) i I gave you a pass on that one because you were in jail at the time (laughs) yeah i had
3: a had a nasty sandwich to eat before i could come in and it didn't settle well so thanks thanks for uh
6: no you had actually spent the night uh in jail as a result of a uh dust up at a at a town hall meeting uh in uh at the missionary baptist church in flint which a lot of our listeners know about um
3: yeah it was it was a it was an eventful uh evening we didn't expect any of it to fall like it did we weren't in there to protest uh i can't really elaborate too much on it but i, I, I i'd like to know where this missionary baptist six came from that's kind of funny uh
6: well, there were six people who yeah, were they, they arrested at the, that event.
3: Right, right. We was called the town hall six, but I'm kind of leaning towards his missionary statement you make it. <laughs>
6: um, but, but all kidding aside, you have been a, a, a visible and outspoken critic of uh, this administration and the last administration, and uh, largely due to the... Uh, Surrounding the the issues regarding Flint's water crisis, as it's come to be known, uh, but but a complete breakdown, a complete failure in the decision making process r- with regard to providing municipal water to the city of Flint. How, however, else you describe it, um, let me ask you this, Tony: um, how how do you change? from from being an outspoken activist to being the administrator of a city should you be elected mayor
3: well first of all let me back you up just a little bit yes uh, i was on board for dane walling both times he's voted in and then we fought to get karen weaver in under statements that were clearly saying that we were going to take care of some problems and if there was ever a problem then she would be called out on it uh just to let you know i didn't sign the petition to recall her um I've given her plenty, and some of us have given her plenty of chances. I've stood against some very pe- people that I've loved in the city for a long time to get her elected. Uh, and as far as being outspoken, isn't your mayor outspoken? Shouldn't they be outspoken? Shouldn't they be self-righteous as far as standing up and saying, look, this is what we're going to do, and stick to that? Dane Walling's uh, done that. He's spoken out and stood for things, S- as same as Karen and, and me personally, I just—I want to make this statement so everybody out there in the public knows, I'm not there to be your mayor. I'm there to make sure you have the right administration. So when you start pointing fingers, you're going to get answers. Uh, as far as the mayor job, if I don't have the right people, or we as a community don't have the right people in position to do this job, then heads need to roll. There needs—we need to stop pussyfooting around.
1: Hi,
2: this is Mark Farner, and you are listening to the Tom Sumner program.
1: Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show.
4: And welcome back, everybody. Armchair Politics continues now on the Tom Sumner program with our roundtable regulars, Paul Rozicki and Henry Hatter, joined by uh, Jasper Martis from the Michigan uh, House of Representatives (laughs) Communication Office in (laughs) Lansing. Um, AKA Jazz, and uh, we're going to continue riffing with Jazz as we uh, move into the next segment. Residents who don't make uh, arrangements to have their water meters changed will have their service shut off, the city says. Ending a moratorium against disconnections that started before the COVID-19 pandemic. Notices to customers with old meters are being sent out in batches, according to a city spokeswoman. And customers who haven't paid a water bill in more than six months could also eventually be disconnected, following a warning by uh, Mayor Sheldon Neely last month. Uh, There's been an update to this story because the uh, council uh, kind of put this on hold I, I believe, at their meeting last night. But, but let me ask this. This is a recommendation coming from the administration. Has the time come to require new equipment and drop moratoriums on water billings?
0: Yes. Hmm. You can't have a city... Yeah, it has been a while. Have while yes, I ...finances mean, to drive itself, <clears throat> continuously erode its finances and expect to survive. It doesn't make sense. Uh, mayor's is right. Somebody has to help pay the bills.
5: My my only thought is maybe maybe the winter time is not the best time to do that. But at some point you got to.
4: Yeah,
0: we have a ahead.
4: Flint has a habit of kind of getting its timing wrong a little bit. Remember the 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 great. Uh, summertime uh, yes. <laughs> garbage issue where they were going to go to every other week, pick up, but they did it in the summertime, and the whole town was just reeking. And it yes. was something yes, they might have tried in January and February and gotten away with it and saved a few dollars.
0: Yeah, but. But, but, Tom, we as citizens of the city of Flint, we know what the conditions are. We know what survival is about. Other people from around the county are not going to come into the city and pay your bills. So for self-survival, you have got to come up with a strategy to at
2: least demonstrate
0: that they're interested in saving the city
2: from itself and from its critics. Yeah, going off of Henry's point, uh, I-, I think that we're at a broader level when we're talking about the moratoriums, whether it's this issue we're talking about or in other areas, you know, rent moratoriums, uh, student loan moratoriums, all these different things. You know, this was all caused by the COVID-19 pandemic, and we're really reaching a new phase of the pandemic um, where, you know, vaccines and booster shots are keeping the vast majority of people who get them uh, from being hospitalized or, God forbid, losing their lives. But we have a a variant that is more transmissible than anything we've seen before. So, I think we're we are at a a very interesting point in the pandemic where we know how to keep ourselves safe, but this is going to be a persistent problem until the Uh, you know, foreseeable future. So going to the point, uh, I think that, you know, Paul and Tom, you were making about this being very bad timing. I think the city of Flint could afford to do this at a different time. But some of these very hard questions about when are we going to start payments again? When are we going to try to return to some level of of normalcy? We've reached a new phase of the pandemic. And this is the point where we're going to have to have those hard conversations.
4: Yeah, it's it's there's uh, a problem here in terms of how long this uh, these moratoriums have been going on because a lot of this started as part of uh, trying to come to terms with the Flint water crisis and then the pandemic came along and we were already in this don't bother paying your bills mode and so now we got to try and figure out well when do we when do we get going again. You know, what's next if the if the pandemic moves along, then then what happens that, that makes it reasonable to not charge people for water.
0: But you know, if you do nothing, the mayor who's the head of the heap and the city is continuously eroding and he says nothing and does nothing, he's responsible for further decay of the city. So he has to act. That's his job. Even if it costs his job, a boats or whatever, he has to save the city. Because the city will be here long after we're all gone. Well, another- and the fact is
5: that water fund has been a major factor in, in stabilizing the city, what stabilization there is in stabilizing the city finances. So it's a, it's a critical fund.
4: Well, we, we may have some help now that the city is getting in position to start spending the $94.7 million in American Rescue Plan Act funds, potentially freeing up additional cash for public safety, blight, and hazard pay. The city council agreed uh, Monday night... Um, to a one-year, $1.1 million contract for Ernst & Young to manage the federal funds, a prerequisite of Mayor Sheldon Neely, for spending the one-time windfall. Officials in the Neely administration had initially requested a five-year, $3.9 million contract with the firm, but said the one-year contract with an option for a second year will be executed. Um, How long should it take? To allocate the ARPA funds
0: <laughs> hmm.
4: I mean I don't know about how it works at City Hall but I can spend money pretty fast
5: that's true yeah I would think the decisions could be made relatively quickly you would think well yeah I mean, the, the spending might take a little longer but the decisions should be able to be made fairly quickly I would think
0: but they got to have people at the table who have some vested interest in and a common sense interest in how we dispense the funds. And well, assuming
4: be. assuming that there's this this whole list of things that, you know, maybe we all have a feeling need to be done, whether it's road and bridge repair or, you know, continuation on upgrading the water system and and making corrections there. Um, there there are all of these various projects that you know can use attention. But are they shovel ready? Uh, you know, do we have to go through, you know, bid processes and uh, you know planning and design elements and all of that? And is each of these projects going to take a long time, or can we just sit down with a budget and say we're going to spend X number of dollars on roads and bridges and X number of dollars on uh, water pipe uh, repairs and, and water delivery system repairs and. Um, you know, blight removal and, and all of these different areas that we know people want to see work get done.
0: But, you know, I think the first thing they got to do is to decide on projects that reduce human suffering. You know, this, wherever people are suffering, because they're the ones that would decide whether the city survives or not. It won't be the people with the machine guns and and the shovels and stuff like that. that was, well, we is we they is reducing human suffering? Is ninety
4: four point seven million dollars enough to give seventy thousand people a job? <laughs> no, no, not, <laughs> not quite that. that.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. no. Well, <laughs> I I think with the American Rescue Plan, uh, it, it it actually, despite it being legislation passed in D.C., it has ramifications for state and local government, and that's really what we're talking about now, is that the the camera, the news stories, our attention so oftentimes with these big pieces of legislation are on what's going on in Washington, D.C., but how we are actually impacted is determined at our state government and then our local government. So the conversations we're having right now about how this can impact Clint This is being had in not only cities across Michigan, but cities across the country. So I think the reason why it takes so long to get this done, and it is frustrating, and it is a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of red tape that uh, if we were to cut through, things would be done more quickly. Uh, You know, it's because it is such a a long-term process. And I, I think that also speaks to what they were trying to do with the American Rescue Plan. The uh, the political capital that President Biden had in his first 100 days, not only because it was the first few weeks of his administration, but also because the point we were at at the pandemic, he had the political capital to have even Joe Manchin say, you know, whatever you want to do, man, we're, we're here to help. And so I think a lot of a lot of the aspects of the American Rescue Plan were, of course, trying to stabilize our economy for the day which was in a tailspin where we were losing thousands of people a day for COVID and where our economy was tanking, but also because it was a moment where we could get a lot of things done, sneaking in some other projects that were going to be important that needed to be tackled, but eh, maybe weren't totally 100% completely related to COVID. So Mm -hmm. I think the, the reason why this is taking a longer term process is number one, that this, a lot of the decisions are going to have to come from the state and local government. And number two, a lot of the funds that were achieved in this package of bills and some other things that have been being done in Congress are more longer-term plans uh, that, you know, it's going to take a little bit for us to see uh, how they're going to impact us.
0: Thank you, Jazz.
4: <laughs> hey, you know, we, we talked about this, this notion of hiring a firm. And I, I'm glad to see that they that they stepped it back, that they, they made it a one-year, one-million-dollar project instead of what they were initially talking about, which was almost $4 million. Right. And it's, but it's still bothersome to me that we couldn't have created uh, a position for, some kind of an ARPA ombudsman or something and for the price of a salary put somebody in charge of, of overseeing
5: um, yeah, compliance issues Yeah, it seems like they could have done it for a lot less than a million dollars
0: Yeah uh, But guys, uh, the problem with that is that you can't remove the politics out of it if you could, now, Once you give it to a, a disinterested party the politics won't be there but they may not have the the love of the city and for the what people want in the city and that's where they have to be guided by oversight committee by someone that you're suggesting yeah but, but see
4: should. when when uh, elected officials hire somebody outside of uh you know the the political world it it's, it's troubling to me because when you say it takes the politics out of it, what that's doing for the politicians is taking the oversight out of it.
0: Yeah. You know,
4: they, well, they don't have uh, General to be Motors responsible. did the same
0: thing. They could not move around inside of their own system without uh, there were those neighborhoods of uh, control centers. And they couldn't get past it. So what they did, they hired consultants. To help them get through the process, and it survived for years and years and years uh, that way. And there are times when it's absolutely necessary to do it. We well, when you don't up.
4: have the expertise, you have to bring somebody in, but yes. bring them onto your team.
5: Yeah, I, I always thought for you know for a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand dollars at the top, you could hire a perfectly competent accountant who could you know join the city administration for a year or two and. And, and oversee the whole process.
0: But he would be jerked around by Democrats or Republicans or this guy or that guy. And outside firms aren't easily intimidated to just do it. Well,
4: I, I, I get your point, Henry, and, and, and it is a good one. Um, but it just it it still bothers me that it's it's considerably more expensive to hire a firm than it is to hire a single expert.
0: I agree, but the rewards are not always the same and, and well, the money doesn't go where it needs to go.
4: Well, Mayor Sheldon Neely's deputy chief of staff has resigned following his September arrest for drunk driving and resisting arrest. A city spokeswoman confirmed DeVarro Murdoch resigned Thursday, January 6th, after having been suspended from his job without pay after his arrest in Flint Township. M. Live, the Flint Journal, could not. Uh, reach Brenda Williams, an attorney who represents Murdoch in the criminal case, for comment on Thursday and Friday, January 7th. Uh, Neither Neely nor Murdoch has commented on the deputy chief of staff's case since the arrest, but a Michigan State Police report obtained by the Journal through the Freedom of Information Act says Murdoch had nearly twice the legal blood alcohol level when he was arrested in September, a dash cam video also obtained by the Journal through a FOIA request, shows Murdoch directing slurs and profanity at officers after a traffic stop on Linden Road near Corona Road just before midnight on September 5th. Is leaving office an appropriate outcome?
0: Yeah, you can no longer serve the public. Yeah, it it shouldn't be the full point. he will
5: still have face penalties for the drunken driving and all that. Yeah. I mean, I think for this, the image of the administration, it, was, it would be hard to keep them on much longer, I would think.
0: And remember, when you get appointed to those positions or elected to them, you have the public trust, and you must go by that until you leave that office. Otherwise, if you do something to impede the public trust, you should not serve in that position. Otherwise, public trust doesn't mean anything. Well, there. Are and like
5: I said, I think the the nature of the it, it wasn't just the drunk driving. It just sounded like a pretty, pretty nasty exchange with the cops and so forth after the mm-hmm. after the arrest and everything else that made it even worse.
4: Well, so. but he was drinking
5: at the time. <laughs> yeah,
4: right. <laughs> 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 he probably normally wouldn't have said those things.
5: That's right. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah.
4: Um, well, there have been several people who've. Uh, run afoul of the law recently in public life and uh, one of them that's uh, fairly close to home um, and and this there have been two or three different articles and I've tried to piece a couple together to to make some sense out of them Jennifer Kelly the victim of a threatening phone call from Genesee County GOP (laughs) chair Matthew Smith sent a letter to the judge asking that Smith not be granted the Holmes Youthful Trainee Act statute which would eventually allow him to remove the misdemeanor from his record Kelly, the Houghton County clerk, said in a news conference on Thursday that Smith did not properly admit to threatening her during his guilty plea, and therefore he should not be granted the HYTA uh, status. Kelly said she originally agreed that Smith could seek the statute, which is intended to help young offenders avoid the stigma of a criminal conviction if he pled guilty and apologized for the threats he made over the phone. When Smith pleaded guilty, he apologized for making a, quote, annoying phone call to Kelly in March 2020. That is what Kelly took issue with. The prosecutor should have objected to that statement because it is not what happened and what was previously agreed upon, Kelly said. Matthew Smith, 24, was sentenced to 12 months probation, ordered to perform 240 hours of community service, fined $650, and was required to write an essay on the effects of bullying others by Genesee District Judge William Crawford um, on uh, Tuesday. Crawford said the GOP chairman has credibility issues in the case because he previously claimed his call was intended simply to explain the official duties of the county clerk and because he filed a police report after the call was traced to him denying he called Kelly and claiming his phone number must have been spoofed. Are Matthew Smith's efforts to spin this story spinning out of control?
0: Mm, uh, um,
5: they're not serving him well. I mean, uh, yeah. a, 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 a clear apology admitting what he'd done might have served him much better. And I'm thinking of uh, Attorney General Dana Nessel with her uh, situation with the at uh, the football game. She she admitted it, and, and that would, it was gone within a day or so.
0: A great contrast, great statement. But, you know, I, I think Matthew Smith... Uh, uh, he more than likely will be recalled from the school board. So oh, it's a double-edged sword. It's looking more and it. more like it, isn't it, Henry? Yeah, but but I thought that Miss Kelly, that was hyper, hyperbole. When I read how, what she had written about how she was afraid that she was going to be attacked any moment and the door would break open and a dog would be killed, I thought she did a good job. And, Hyper, hyperbolizing
5: that. Right. One other question I had in terms of that youth offender law: What are there age limits for that? I mean, I mean, Matthew Smith's a young guy, but he's not a teenager. No, I, did, I just it, wonder the, the details of the law, and I don't know the answer to that.
0: Well, they made it. He's twenty-four now, but uh, while the court case is going on, but when this event happened, he was twenty-three, and it sounds like there's a. Um, a definition of 23 or less yeah. from what we read. I don't know the law, and um, I would guess that, that that would not apply to anyone above Yeah, that was my
5: thought, too. I mean, I, I understand applying this to a, a, a youngster, a teenager, but as I say, Smith is in his <laughs> mid-20s, so uh, it's a little bit different, it seemed to me.
0: And they made Smith look like Rittenhauser when he was crying <laughs> before the court. <laughs>
4: well you know kelly um when she her her complaint is uh Jennifer Kelly's complaint is that this was all agreed to as part of the plea deal and then he didn't exactly do what the plea deal required
0: mm-hmm. i and, apologize i called this kelly by her last name I and I, she's my daughter's name is Kelly, so Kelly is a first name for me.
4: And and she's um, now she's trying to walk back her agreement to you know uh, to allow this provision for him.
0: Hmm. Well, I well, again, that. the
4: reality
5: is that's going to keep the story alive for a longer time. From from Smith's point of view, he would have been much wiser, politically wiser. To simply come clean and say, "Yep, I did something really dumb."
2: Yeah, Jazz, have you been? This event
0: gave him so much. May I just say that this event gave him so much uh, publicity that he could run for president without campaigning or without paying out any money. Solicitation. Oh, that could never happen. (laughs) 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 No, Jazz. Same book.
4: Jazz,
2: are you still with us? It, yeah, sorry it cut out for a half a second. I, I were you talking about Matthew Smith or you, me? <laughs>
4: <laughs> no, we were talking about Matthew Smith, but I, but that's, I wonder okay, that, if you've been following this story and you know, working in the communication office is is he yeah. is he handling this well or not so much? He,
2: he is not handling this well, and I apologize, I wasn't able to hear because my dog was going crazy. I don't know if she was triggered by hearing about what Matthew Smith was up to or what, but I think um, as somebody who's worked in politics for a while, and I think you know all of you have, have seen this through throughout your lives, it is very hard uh, to get politicians to admit when they were wrong, and uh, you know there's a lot of reasons that go into that. We could go from armchair politics to armchair psychology. But I think the problem is, uh, you know, if, if you're not honest from the beginning, you're going to get in trouble. I mean, you can look at the big deal cases from Watergate to uh, Clinton's impeachment that uh, if you come out from day one and admit that there's a problem, uh, you're most likely going to be forgiven and we can move on. but uh, you know going back to how he is being uh, you know getting this plea deal or potential plea deal rather because he's considered a young person, you know this could taint his career for the rest of his life and and most of the time I, I assume those those um, types of plea deals are used for you know a young punk kid that gets caught with, marijuana or something like this and we're talking about a person that wants to live a uh, public life in public service. Well we're gonna have to
4: falling. we're gonna have to break here but we'll be right back. Hello there citizens.
0: Darkwing Duck here and every time I'm in Flint fighting crime I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget
2: stay dangerous.
1: Darkwing Duck out East Village magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint.
6: This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
4: Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation uh, uh, known as uh, our weekly roundtable known as Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program with our roundtable regulars Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter, joined by uh, Jazz. Jasper uh, Martis is uh, joining, rounding out the roundtable, if you will, and he's uh, officially been indoctrinated as uh, he's he's now lived through being cut off for a break <laughs>
2: <laughs> was that a part of the hazing process
4: yeah it is usually it's usually henry that gets uh, that gets interrupted uh, when we go to break, but uh, it it is part of the process because uh, I I I just hate to interrupt people when they're making a good point, Jazz. Um, do you want to pick it up where we left off or move on? It's that's up to you, Jazz. You were talking uh, when we had to cut away.
2: Well, uh, I I just apologize that I, I I was not able to hear some of the conversation before I was trying to calm my dog down, but I I think that. Um, you know, we, we sometimes think of politics as a lot different than any other line of work, but I think it should be treated just the same as anything else. And, uh, the more the, if you're honest in the beginning, it's going to make things much more easy in the end. And I think that's something that, uh, Matthew Smith is learning now and that throughout our history, uh, and in our day-to-day lives, it's something that's important to remember.
4: Well, you know, you couldn't have set up this next piece better if we had uh, collaborated on it, Jazz, uh, because it deals with exactly that. Should, uh, you know, people in public life be held to a higher standard uh, than people would in, you know, everyday jobs and and in everyday walks of life? Former House Speaker Lee Chatfield is denying allegations that he sexually assaulted his sister-in-law for more than a decade, claiming they were both consenting adults. In a statement provided by Chatfield's attorney, Mary Chartier, or Chartier, however you say it, she said uh, Chatfield had affairs while he was married, including a sexual relationship with the woman who is now claiming she was raped. Their affair lasted for years, but they were both consenting adults, the statement read. Mr. Chatfield deeply regrets the decisions he has made, but he did not assault this woman in any manner during their years-long adult relationship. He intends to vigorously fight these false claims. Chatfield is being investigated following a criminal complaint alleging Chatfield 33 began sexually assaulting the now 27-year-old woman at the Gaylord Northern Michigan Baptist Bible Church when she was 15 and continued until last year, according to the woman's attorney, Jamie White. White represented many of the survivors of the Larry Nasser case and currently represents several of Robert Anderson's sexual assault victims. Do you think these charges would attract as much attention if Lee Chatfield hadn't served as Speaker of the House? And might the timing of these charges have anything to do with any future political aspirations he might have?
5: Yeah, I think, yeah, if he hadn't been Speaker, they certainly would have played a different kind of role. And... Uh, it certainly is going to have, I think, an impact on any kind of future political political future he's, he's planning on. It. Um, it's going to be hard. Whatever the results of it are, it'll be hard to escape that. So.
4: Anybody else want to pick on uh, former Speaker Chatfield?
2: Well, I'll say due, due to the nature of my employment, I can't talk in in specifics um about something like this uh because i I do work for the michigan uh house and so i'm just speaking as myself and and nothing to do with my job um I, i think to your earlier point tom of how do we handle politicians versus how do we handle everybody else this is a very serious accusation and i think it's important that you know that the deliberative process is uh Pursued with this, and I think we're at a very interesting point when it comes to you know having gone through the Me Too movement um, almost a half a decade ago, um, where we are now seeing um, whether it's public figures that we all know and in some cases uh, loved, or people in our day to day lives, um, people that act inappropriately are being held accountable. And I think that when you look at you know five years since the Me Too movement began, early on there were some cases where I think things went a little bit too far. You can look at a case like Al Franken, for example. But I think now we're reaching a new phase of um, how we consider the workplace, how we consider uh, the people we ha- hold in high esteem, and how we interact with each other, where there is a legal process, there is a f- process in... <laughs> Um, the workplace where we deal with these issues, where um, accusations are very important, but then investigating them and getting to the bottom of things, where um, there were some instances where maybe that went too far a few years ago, but where we're at now, um, I think it's important that women feel that they can come forward, women can tell their stories, and that men who act inappropriately are uh, held accountable.
0: Yeah, you know, we've had those, those kind of practices at General Motors that's been around for uh, decades. Uh, and, uh, and, and you can just imagine that uh, that was as widespread uh, as it is in government today. But uh, that has always been a practice within large corporations that you cannot harass the women who work uh, for the company their are unions that see that that's accomplished, in their are lawsuits. Uh, so, yeah, uh, politicians would be held to a higher standard because they have the public trust. Nobody else has the public trust because it's people that put the trust into them. And uh, when you let them down uh, for lack of following the law, you need to apologize, just like uh, Jazz has said, that's... Watch if he's on that and then leave and find another job or something
2: and and we don't want exactly we don't it doesn't matter whether you're you're working at gm or you're working in politics or you're you're working in radio it doesn't matter where you're working the uh you know the idea that um women have to be afraid for how they're going to be treated or being alone with certain individuals or um, the reputations that other folks might have, that is something that, you know, as Henry pointed out, that's been a problem for decades. That's been a problem, you know, throughout uh, human history. And and if we can make some sort of progress to make um, the workplace, the home, the general public square more safe and welcoming for everybody, I, I see that as progress.
4: Yeah, I, there are some things about this particular batch of allegations that are troubling to me. The length of time over which these events occurred is a little troubling to me and 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 just the notion of the kind of attention that this story is getting, not that it wouldn't get attention if it had happened uh, you know at a at a college or in a fortune 500 company but the fact that you know this is somebody who served in a fairly high-ranking uh, public office may be considering a run again and and that there's i'm i'm just i don't want to say cynical but skeptical enough to to wonder about whether or not uh lee chatfield had his eyes on something and 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 this story has been um, fueled to make that difficult.
5: Yeah, it's entirely possible because those kind of charges, unlike and almost I'm not any trying other to, charges, they're so to, hard to
4: prove one way and, or the other. And I'm not trying to offer them a way out, but I just—it just seems like when it involves public officials, these stories get bigger than they normally would
5: true i tell you take a look at governor cuomo in new york
4: yeah i'm still i'm still not entirely sure what he did
0: yeah i i have a problem with that too guys i mean i know some
4: of the you know i know some of the allegations i mean i'm not in a complete bubble but it's um you know it's it's just not as clear
0: Yeah, if we if there wasn't so much opportunity for opportunists to get involved, if the opportunists would stay out there, we could see a clearer picture. But that is not the case.
2: I think the thing with Cuomo, and, and by the way, since Chris Cuomo lost his job at CNN, I, I just am curious, you know, are Andrew and Chris hanging out somewhere? I, You know, they both had a pretty rough 2021. I, I think... Part of the problem with Cuomo was you just had scandal on top of scandal on top of scandal. There were the, um, you know, sexual harassment allegations. You had the problems with COVID and the nursing homes. You had questions over his book deal. And I, 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 you know, I can remember uh, thinking early on in the pandemic, you know, this guy's fantastic. And then halfway through walking through Meyer and seeing a book he had written and being like, how did... How did he have time to be combating COVID and writing a book? Uh, but anyway, you had the, I mean, hey, he's more talented than me. I, I don't think I could multitask like that. But you had the sexual harassment, you had the um, questions over nursing homes, you had the book deal some other allegations of ethics, and I think it was problem on top of problem on top of problem. And going back to do we hold, how do we hold politicians accountable compared to everybody else, uh, something that, uh, you know, no matter what line of work you're in, it's important that you can actually do your job. So the problem with Cuomo, I think, became, can he effectively right. uphold his oath to the state constitution? Can he do his job?
6: Right.
4: Well, we're going to take a, uh, a short break here for Top of the Hour I.D., and then we'll be back with the second half of Armchair Politics uh, as, um, as as we uh, continue on with today's edition of the Tom Sumner Program. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. More Armchair Politics is straight ahead.
3: Hi, I'm Alexander Zodzik. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner.